Hey everybody, welcome to Lost Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pukulski. So for the longest time, I've been the person perhaps advocating against nutrition being exclusively about calories. And without extending too much into the topics of conversation in today's podcast, uh, Krista Scott Dixon joins me today, who's the content director at Precision Nutrition and responsible for the incredible things happening over at uh, Precision Nutrition's new curricula- curriculum development. Uh, we get into health, we get into DNA, we get into performance, we get into calories, we get into what thriving ultimately should look like and how to design it in your life. Uh, and ultimately, you know, performance is what we're all after. We all want to thrive. We all want to live at our highest and best, not just barely get by. And Krista Scott Dixon gives us an amazing holistic, and I hate that word, but ultimately it's this, this well-rounded approach that I've been advocating for years. And they, they do a really good job of turning it into a curriculum for you guys and who's a coach or ultimately wants to understand this stuff. Uh, Krista Scott Dixon and Precision Nutrition team is an incredible resource for you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizers. I've been working with Bioptimizers for four years now since they started the product. You know, I'm a massive fan. I suggest about four mass zymes per meal on average. Uh, Sometimes I take as many as 10 between meals. Um, but that's uh, on a rare occasion where I'm really trying to decrease inflammation. Actually, proteolytic enzymes is one of my favorite ways, if not my, certainly actually my favorite way to decrease joint pain and inflammation. And I'll take in between meals when your body's not then going to use those enzymes to break down the protein in your stomach. It's actually going to use it to start breaking down um, a, a larger protein molecules that can sometimes accumulate on the joints. And I love it. And a larger dose, usually in the morning, sometimes after a workout, is a really great way to bring down that systemic inflammation. So uh, you guys can head over to bioptimizers.com and use the code MUSCLE10, M-U-S-C-L-E-1-0, to get 10% off. And uh, you also can use that to get any of the other products on the site as well. Masslimes is just my go-to uh, everyday product. I also use their mag breakthrough on a consistent basis. I just popped some gluten guardian this morning because I thought it might've come to some gluten and my stomach didn't feel so good. So those are great product recommendations from Bioptimizers. Enjoy the show with Krista Scott Dixon. Krista Scott Dixon, welcome to the podcast. The uh, director of curriculum at Precision Nutrition and the person that John Berardi credits as the smartest person he's met when it comes to nutrition. <laughs> so I had to reach out, and you know the way that I respect John is is uh, second to few, and um, so you know that comes with a very high regard in my eyes. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, and I didn't know John said that about me, and now now I feel like oh my goodness, because no he pressure. knows lots of smart people. So wow, <laughs> no pressure, right? Uh, well, you know John uh, is uh, is a very honest guy, and he, he tends to speak his mind and speak his truth, and. Uh, so if that's the reality, I'd love to dig into your brain and, and uh, <laughs> kind of discuss how maybe you got into this path. I know you attended York University, and then uh, how did you end up with Precision Nutrition, and maybe why did you become a nutritionist? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I always have a bit of hesitation answering this question because part of me feels like, uh, you know, whatever I say is going to delegitimize me, uh, but also, uh, I, but I do think it's helpful because it really illustrates the fact that most people, I think, have a much more circuitous path into 
achievement than they expect. And so, I mean, I started out not a nutrition at all. Uh, my mother was a dietitian, actually. She was a hospital dietitian for years and she taught, you know, biology and stuff. So like I did actually kind of grow up in like a nutrition oriented environment, but I went to school for fine arts originally, uh, did my PhD in completely unrelated disciplines, was more of a social science um, degree, which has surprisingly become very relevant because uh, the majority of our clients are now kind of raising the kinds of things that I dealt with in my PhD work. So that was sort of interesting. But as a grad student, uh, if, if you've ever been a grad student, you know, it's not the most health promoting lifestyle. So I got really out of shape and I was broke and I sat on my ass all day long and drank a lot of beer and ate a lot of fast food. So, uh, you know, not surprisingly, uh, I got pretty out of shape. Uh, and so really my first foray into learning about health and nutrition uh, was to fix myself, was to feel better and, you know, lose the 50 pounds or so that I had gained on a five foot tall body. Uh, and so, you know, I had access to a university library. I just went in there and started reading all the textbooks. And so that was, you know, it was really self-education in the beginning. And then when I had my quarter life crisis, I guess it would be, and decided to quit academia, um, you know, I had known Phil Caravaggio, the co-CEO of PN for a long time, and we'd started this charity together called the Healthy Food Bank. And so I contacted him and I said, hey, guess what? I quit my, quit my job. And he said, great, <laughs> come work with us. And so in the beginning, uh, what I was doing was editing their textbook. So this was the first iteration of what would become the level one certification textbook. My job was just to edit it. And they handed me this thing that was like 700 pages of scientific jargon long and said make it readable so that was my first job and uh, then I went on to be a coach using all my skills from adult education and curriculum design and stuff and then I started writing the program and here we are uh, 10-15 years later so yeah it's been a really yeah. journey. Mm -hmm. Well I love the fact that you're someone who uh, is an academic because I think a lot of the times um, you know nutrition seems to be one of the most subjective things that we have right it, it, there's the level of subjectivity to it is uh, endless and everyone seems to think that their way is the right way and uh, there's so much dogma that exists in nutrition and I, uh, you know this is a very loaded question and maybe too hard to answer but I'd love to dig down maybe over this course of the next you know however many minutes into what you think in nutrition is actually objective and you know rather than giving people these subjective opinions and these these uh, you know guidelines and that's wonderful but what have you come across in your years as a as a you know very academic studying nutrition that uh, we can tell people that are that is objectively true it's a that's actually a great question because i think there's sort of two pieces to it like what can we tell people what advice can we give people but also how do we know what is truthful and yeah. what is not right how do we know what we know and so let me let me take on the first piece and say that we can look at evidence that tells us it gives us more like probabilities you know so we can think about nutrition as with most science in terms of probabilities this is more likely than this to occur uh, and so with nutrition we can look at a lot of evidence whether that's across cultures whether that's within the body like what is actually occurring within the body what can we observe and say okay this particular choice will not inevitably have this result but it is more likely than another choice to have a particular result. So we can kind of like, you know, people will often say, oh, you can use science to prove anything, which is entirely untrue. Um, and especially untrue if we step back and look at the aggregate 
of what we have learned over right. the years. And so that's really where the value of, of scientific research lies, is in the cumulative knowledge and observations and evidence. So um, that's how we're knowing what we're knowing at this point. And so I think we can say with fairly strong confidence that first, human beings are highly adaptable and resilient. We are one of the toughest species on the planet in terms of adaptability and the ability to survive under various conditions. So we can eat a whole range of foods. And that's piece number one, I think is, is super important to understand because people will say, oh, look at this population. They eat X, Y, and Z and they're healthy. Oh, look at that population. They, they eat the exact opposite and they're super healthy. And one of the take homes here is that, yes, humans can survive and even thrive on a wide variety of diets. Many dietary patterns are optimized for the specific populations that they developed in conjunction with, right? People are eating like what's around them and populations developed around that. Um, but we can definitely say, looking at all these cross-cultural patterns, that in all probability, human beings need protein. We need an adequate and optimal amount of protein. Uh, one of the principles that governs us is not is that surviving is not the same thing as thriving, right? Adequate is not optimal, right? So there's differences. And many nutritional recommendations are really about preventing malnutrition or deficiency rather than being optimal or, you know, being your best, if I can say it that way. So we know that human beings need a certain amount of protein to survive and then a little bit more to thrive. We know that human beings need uh, a proper balance of water, fluid and electrolytes in their bodies. And so if we consume, for example, highly processed diets, or we drink a lot of alcohol, you know, that balance gets out of whack. So we know that this is a thing that human bodies need. We know that human bodies seem to thrive when given lots and lots of fruits and vegetables and relatively unprocessed plant foods. So, you know, there's debate about whether humans sh should eat whole grains or should eat beans and legumes. If you can tolerate them, and you feel great on them, then you should eat them, right? If you don't, then you shouldn't. It's as simple as that. Uh, human, needs, human beings need a certain amount of fiber uh, from these unprocessed plants because, you know, our gut microbiome uh, requires sustenance. Um, and human beings need a, a diversity and a variety of foods. Uh, we need to eat the right amount for energy balance for our physiological functioning. And I'm probably forgetting one or two, you know, key principles. We need to eat the things that are kind of familiar and culturally appropriate and, you know, feel um, kind of spiritually correct for us, if I can say it that way, you know, are kind of part of like our worldview. Um, but other than that, I think there are very, very few must-haves in human nutrition. And there's lots of room to play within each of those things I just said, really. Right. So mm -hmm. one of the other number of things I want to jump into there, mm -hmm. one thing you said there was the necessity of fiber. And there's a lot of people pushing back on that now. And I'm sure you're up to date on most of the research, and I'm not. And I'd love to hear... Um, is it, in fact, necessary to consume fiber? Because there's a whole camp of people saying, well, you actually don't, um, you know, maybe you can tolerate it, but maybe you don't need it. Any thoughts and... and uh, yeah, I mean, again, surviving is not thriving, right? And I think that if we look at the... I like to go back to first principles. And so this is, for me, one of the best ways, not to settle an argument exactly, but to gain a deeper understanding of what we're looking at. And so... I like to go back to first principles, things like physiology, physiological processes, physiological structures. So if we look at the construction of the human gastrointestinal tract and we compare it to various species, we can see that humans are somewhere in the middle as omnivores. 
humans really originated as omnivores and scavengers. So we can look to our evolutionary history, we can look to our current physiology and say, okay, this is the gastrointestinal tract of an omnivore scavenger, more or less, right? So there's a particular length to the, the small intestine, there's a particular length to the, uh, the large intestine, there's a particular structure to the stomach. Uh, so, you know, the super high fiber diet eaters would be something like ruminant animals, right? Cows, sheep, right? They have multi-chambered stomachs, they have a particular bacterial environment that they need to digest grass and, you know, other sort of sticks and twigs and you know, whatever else, right? Uh, and then if you look at uh, obligate carnivores, they have a much uh, different gastrointestinal tract and they have a gastrointestinal tract that is designed to like quickly pass things through, right? So we're somewhere in the middle, which tells us that there's probably a balance of foods that we require, plant and animal foods. But also if you look at our gut microbiome and the physiology of the gut microbiome, you see that our gut bacteria require particular kinds of materials to be present because that's their food right so a lot of what we're doing when we're feeding ourselves is actually feeding them sure and then they feed us with the, the metabolic byproducts that they produce so you know to put it really simply no fiber equals no healthy bacteria no healthy bacteria equals no short chain fatty acids that have important right. biological functions so i mean i find people tend to think in very all or nothing terms yeah. right it's either this or it's this it's right. not really the case there's the the argument that butyrate is, is the ultimate end result right which is can also happen via different pathways and, and who knows evolutionarily if it's if it's the microbiome is being passed generation to generation what it may have looked like five generations or ten generations ago and that's kind of where that their argument is it's like well maybe we, we've just adapted to have this uh, vegetable-based um, diet in, in our microbiome based on the guidelines that have existed in our culture for the last, you know, 100 to 150 years. And again, I, I don't know the answer. I'm just, I'm, I'm always open to an open discussion with smart people to be like, hey, and the answer inevitably lies somewhere, as you say, somewhere in the middle, typically, right? Mm -hmm. Some people can probably do really well on a low-fiber diet, and some people can probably do really well on a medium to high-fiber diet. I'm curious to, if, if that's what our... our common ground is. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the principles that should govern us in nutritional recommendations is physiological variation. And I mean, human variation and diversity in general, right? So, I mean, whether that's your, your ancestry, your genetic heritage, the population that you originally come from, whether that's your current environment, I mean, there's all kind, you know, your current health and medical situation, like we do know that there are people for whom a high fiber diet is absolutely contraindicated, mm -hmm. right? They do not thrive on a high fiber diet. These would be people with inflammatory bowel disease and so forth. Um, but I think uh, if we look at the anthropological evidence, we see that humans have never evolved as obligate carnivores. Like they have never uh, in their evolutionary past. So, I mean, I would agree, like food has definitely changed in the last hundred years or so, even the last 50 years. Yeah. Um, but if we, if we stretch, we turn the clock back, you know, millions of years into our evolutionary past, we can see that the best evidence we have available about our primate ancestors and then our hominid ancestors is that they did consume these foods, whether they were agriculturally obtained or whether they were like, you know, dug out of the ground or whatever. Uh, there's no uh, evidence that we, that we would thrive. Now, the best evidence we have, of course, is our own experience, right? That is the strongest evidence that I will take when I look at a nutrition client. It's like, how are you doing? How do you look, feel, perform? What do your insides tell me? If I look at your blood work, if I look at, you know, all of these physiological indicators, how are you sleeping? How's your mood? How's your energy? And, and especially over the long term, 
Because I think what happens is people will start a new diet, right? And in a week, they're like, oh my God, I feel awesome. I have so much energy. And then like six weeks, six months, a year from now, the, the picture is much, much different, right? And we want to be curious about what was the actual cause of you feeling better? Was it because you took out crap? <laughs> was it because you added something? Was it because often when people, for example, start the so-called carnivore diet, they're eating more protein? You know, like we really want to be clear, what is the thing making the magic here? Right. And I often find that when folks talk about diets, they ascribe uh, particular effects, perhaps to the wrong cause, or we, we don't always know <laughs> what causes things, right? And the placebo effect is extremely strong. In our recent uh, curriculum, we've actually started to elevate placebo, kind of jokingly, but kind of not, as one of the most powerful supplements you can take, right? So this is a very powerful thing. And so we just, it's, we just wanna be cautious. And, and the ultimate evidence is the data that you have on yourself over the long term. Right, so you, meant that you mentioned anthropology, and that's really interesting because um, that's something that I think has been brought to the forefront a little bit lately is, is kind of eating for your ancestry based on where you've come from and on the planet. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on that. Do you think there is a lot of merit there or if people's epigenetics kind of manipulated things so much to this point that it isn't going to have that much of an influence at this point? My guess is that it probably has different effects in different people. And one of the challenges in talking about human populations is that like ancestry is extremely complex, right? Like even if we're talking about the so-called cradle of civilization, which would be Africa, like there's just a massive amount of genetic diversity there, right? And then there's also these little hotspots of genetic diversity elsewhere in the world. Some, some of them are kind of unexpected, like Micronesia, right? It's very genetically diverse. And so, you know, ancestry is very much not a straightforward thing. So unless, you know, your people have been living in some isolated mountain village for like thousands of years, you're really not going to get um, a genetically clear like lineage of like, yes, this is a very constrained set of conditions and we've been doing this. And so we should continue to do this. I mean, the best you can do is kind of like you know, shoot it into the ballpark of general hypotheses about what you could try. But um, again, you know, I'd circle back to the fact that the only evidence is, is that of your experience. And even within particular populations, you know, it's not a population of clones. Right? <laughs> it's still uh, a heterogeneous population, even within, uh, you know, this particular small group. So it's like kind of a yes and a no. And maybe, right, it's, it's like this could give you clues. And also, it's not just about the physiology, but, but eating uh, in a way that, you know, your ancestors may have also connects you to that heritage that you have in a way that might be psychologically satisfying, right? If you're from an indigenous population and you are eating the foods that your ancestors ate, I mean, there may be physiological merit to that, but there may also be like, you know, it may, I, I think of it as like filling the soul, like this may also be psychologically deeply important to you. So it's, it's all, the answer is almost always it depends, right. I hate to say. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's better than being dogmatic, I'll tell you. Yeah. So, um, how about DNA? So obviously precision nutrition is seen as one of the most cutting uh, edge nutrition certifications on the planet. How much are you guys actually looking at DNA and its implication on how we should actually be eating. So I feel as though, and you can you can obviously give me your opinion on this too. I feel as though that's the future, right? It's like we'll have a DNA printout going, "Hey, this is what your body is predisposed to. Here's how you metabolize fats. Here's how you metabolize carbs. Here's your inflammatory pathways. Here's the vitamins and minerals you're deficient in. 
go, right? And, and then maybe it's an adaptable thing based on epigenetics. And maybe we'll have, you know, hopefully in the future, we'll have the ability to go based on your stress levels, based on your, your exposures. Here's this combination of things that you need to ultimately support every system in your body. Are we heading down that path? Have you guys started that, opened up that chapter yet? And do you think that's the future? Um, it's, it's a super complicated question. I mean, we do have a free ebook available on genetic testing and what it can tell us about, and it's quite extensive, right? So we do a deep dive into this and, you know, for, for like advanced commentary on this, I would definitely refer you to the people that have PhDs on our team in this area. Right. Yeah. Um, but who's that? You know, that would be Helen Coleus, Dr. Helen Coleus, who's our PhD of molecular biology. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> There's a couple, there's a few pieces to this. So, so one of them is the question, can we produce at this stage in 2020, uh, a blueprint based on your DNA for how you should eat? And I think the answer to that is definitively no, we cannot. I mean, the amount of known variation like that we know about in a population that is applicable to you, um, we know like just a tiny fraction of, of what uh, the situation is, let's say. Um, we also know that many things are uh, complex, right? So they don't just result from a single variation, they result from multiple variations, right? So your ability to process cholesterol, for example, or your ability to uh, metabolize uh, carbohydrates. And, and again, even within carbohydrates, there's like multiple, are, are we talking about sugar? Are we talking about fiber? Like, what are we, you know, are we talking about starch? Like, you know, glucans, like, what are we talking about? Um, so, we really cannot say with full confidence at this point, yes, this is exactly what you should be eating. Maybe in 50 years, we can do that. Um, so we're not there yet, but we could be. I mean, it's clear to see how this is going. But the other piece is that even if I gave you a perfect nutritional blueprint and said you have to eat exactly three grams of broccoli a day or whatever, right? You, we have to get you to do it. Like that is the huge piece that people leave out all the time of like, even if you give someone an absolutely brilliant prescription that is spot on for everything they need, you have to get them to do it. You have, they have to have the skills to execute. They have to have the desire to execute. Um, and that is a huge missing um, component. And finally, you know, like most of these recommendations still circle around these core principles. Like no one's DNA is so exceptional that they're eating rocks or trees or something like that, right? Like it's still gonna come down to, you know, eat enough protein, eat your fruits and vegetables. Like it's gonna come down to these core principles that most of us should be practicing anyway. So I do think that there is a little bit of fantasy and magical thinking in um, genetic testing and nutrigenomics. I'm not saying it's not a valid science, it absolutely is. But I think in terms of whether this is relevant for actual people doing things in the real world, um, I'm not as confident yeah, about that. Yeah, I think that. it may just be, you know, where my brain goes is like, hey, you know, Krista, you need a little extra protein. Based on, on, on what we see happening epigenetically over the last five or ten years, yeah, sure. bump your protein up and then we can almost track it. You know, if we're doing blood work anyways, maybe we have the ability to pull epigenetic marks from each blood sampling. Maybe it's happening yearly. Based on the last 12 months, you've had exposure to this, you've had too much of this, you need a little more of this. That might be a very realistic thing. Yeah, I think absolutely. It would have to be an ongoing tracking, whether or not people are willing to do that. 
Sure. And we can do that. We can do that now, though. I mean, this is the thing, right? Like so much of what we're going to be doing would be just confirming what a really good intuitive coach uh, would probably already know. And I think that's sort of the funny thing. It's like, do you need more energy? Do you need less energy? Well, we can start with a predictive equation based on your age and your body weight and your, you know, activity, all that kind of stuff. And we'll get you in the ballpark and then we'll fiddle with it a little bit. So like in practice, a lot of it would not be different. I do agree that it's extremely cool. I mean, I think there's just massive potential there to learn about ourselves and and how we are as unique organisms and also how we're connected to the rest of humanity. Like, I think I don't want people to go away thinking, oh, you know, Chris is pooping on DNA. <laughs> it's like, no, this is extremely cool and, and, you know, interesting. And there's so much potential in really understanding the complex interactions between, you know, our DNA, our environment, what we consume um, and so forth. So there's lots of cool stuff there. It's just not, it doesn't work the way that people assume or want it to work. I guess that's how I would put it. Yeah. yeah. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, how would you recommend or, or what do you recommend for people to start um, establishing baseline calories? So, you know, we get a lot of coaches all the time go, hey, like, where do I start my, cal- my clients with calories? Is it a particular equation you use? Um, do you have a particular thought process on uh, where you suggest or where maybe PN suggests everyone um, establish their foundational calories? Yeah, we don't actually, okay, I want to be really careful when I say this. We we absolutely believe in energy balance, right? We believe in the laws of thermodynamics. So I don't want, one of, I think, the the mistaken beliefs about precision nutrition is, oh, we don't believe in calories, right? That's To me, that's like not believing in gravity. But what we do begin with is looking much more at people's holistic practices. Like, what are they actually doing in their daily life? And so for most clients uh, who are not, what we, so we divide clients into various levels, levels of skill, levels of um, how specific they need to be to get to their goals, right? So someone who has very advanced goals, has very advanced skills, would have a much different approach than someone who's just a regular person who just wants to feel better, right? So typically with most of our clients, we don't actually start with a calorie target. What we start with is something like teaching them about their hunger and their fullness cues, right? Are you hungry right now if you're about to start eating? Uh, As you're eating, do you know whether you are full, right? So we actually like to start with teaching a lot of appetite awareness rather than giving them a calorie target because what happens is if I give you a calorie target, people don't typically know how to eat unless they have that calorie target in front of them, right? And for most people, that's, you know, they adhere to it for a week or two weeks and they're like, I'm done with that. We do like to teach um, energy intake in terms of hand size portions, which is typically easy for people to understand and do. But in terms of calculating, like what is your intake? Let's say we had a client for whom that would be appropriate. Uh, We actually have a calculator that uh, Brian St. Pierre developed. Uh, So we have a pro version and like a regular person version. So the pro has all these like advanced customizations. So we looked at all the predictive equations, uh, Kevin Hall's work, you know, the National Institute of Weight Management or whatever it is. So we looked at all of their equations and compiled them into a calculator. So I I would say, you know, two years ago, I would have said, oh, we we use, you know, standard equations or coefficients. Now I'm like, we would just put it into the calculator and say, you know, what's your goal? What's your weight? How, you know, how old are you? What's your biological sex? What is it you want to do? And the calculator would say, okay, this person for their goals and needs would need to eat X amount of energy. And then here's how it breaks down into a daily menu of hand-sized portions. You would need to eat so many palms of protein, so many fists of vegetables and so forth. So that's how we do it. So a lot depends on who is the person in front of me? What am I starting with? Is giving them a prescribed energy intake 
even the most appropriate way to start for this client. Um, and a lot of times it's not, uh, it may be later, but it's not often in the beginning. So I don't know if that truly answers your question because the yeah, answer sure. is like we put it into a calculator. Of course, I, yeah, I get it. <laughs> We're lazy people, what can I say? Yeah, I get it, that's the, that's the modern way, right? Yeah. A lot of my audience is, is much more high level, right? People who are gonna follow a diet, people who are mm-hmm. like, hey man, like, tell me right. exactly, what's the optimal way to do it? Right, right. We have, you know, loaded with professional athletes and high level entrepreneurs who are like, hey, tell me exactly what I need to do to perform at my highest right. and best. And that's why that, um, that question comes up a lot is because they're like, well, should I be eating an excess of calories? Should I be eating a, you know, a deficit in calories or should I be isocaloric and should I be calorie cycling? That's kind of where that question was going. It's like, yeah, no, it, it, it makes total sense. And I mean, the, the simple answer is we start with a baseline and iterate over time, right? So if you were a, that kind of client, we'd say, okay, cool. Here's your starting, here's, here's, here's our opening bid for you, right? Here's what your plan is gonna look like for this week. Come back at the end of the week, we'll measure your indicators, see how you look, feel, perform. Um, you know, are you moving towards your goal? Are you moving away from your goal? And over time, we sort of like prototype and iterate towards the optimal amount for you, which does change, right? Um, so I might not lead with calorie cycling if someone just needs a simple deficit or a simple surplus or you know a maintenance intake. Uh, we can add that in over time if the goal uh, requires it. But we like to kind of, you know, keep things as simple as possible because, you know, if we're talking about athletes and entrepreneurs and busy people, these people don't have time <laughs> or energy or attention to be doing a lot of the fiddling with the knobs and the dials, right? Like our game is always the judo of it, right? What's the optimal leverage point? What's the least amount of work we can do for the most impact? And then we leave the rest alone if it's yeah. not necessary. So someone comes into a precision nutrition um, certification or, or sorry, working with one of the precision nutrition coach, coaches, is it just looking at nutrition or are they looking at all the other lifestyle factors as well? So it's not just, you know, hey, here's what you eat. Are we looking at sleep? Are we looking at stress? Are we looking at um, aerobic fitness? We're we looking at exercise. Like how do, how do you guys involve that into the equation? Yeah, we're looking at all of it, to be honest. Like we have this model we call deep health. And the idea is that there's, there's, you know, being healthy, thriving, right? Uh, achieving optimal performance is actually a function of all these different domains of your life, right? So even if you're a high level athlete at the peak of your physical condition, if your mind is all messed up, if, you're, if your relationship is going wrong, if you're stressed out about money, if you have a long commute, whatever, you know, that is going to affect your performance, even if you have all of the other physical aspects in place. So we actually, you know, try to take a very holistic perspective and say, how are you sleeping? What's your stress level like? How are your relationships? How's your social support? What's around you? Do you have a deeper why? Do you have a sense of purpose for why you're even doing this right now? Um, You know, how connected do you feel to what you're doing? How's your thinking? How's your learning? How's your memory? Like we kind of look at all of these domains and try to come up with a program that maybe we, we can't directly address all of them. Like I can't fix your relationship with your intimate partner, <laughs> but we can kind of call it out as something that may affect uh, what you're doing in our work together. So we try to address all of these things in some way or another. And a lot of the skills that we teach are skills that have impacts on these other deep health domains. So like your mental fitness, for example, we teach visualization, mental skills, planning, prep, you know, all that kind of stuff that then has a, um, an amplifying effect on the other physical goals that you've got. So let's walk through one of those. So you said mental uh, prep or mental skills. Um, what does that look like? So someone comes in and they're stressed and they're saying, hey, you know what? 
Uh, I'm really doing really well with my diet, but I'm not getting the results I want because X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and stress is a very broad concept, right? So let's, let's say that there's kind of, you know, we first want to discern like what is, what are the, all the multiple sources of the stress, right? So one of the first steps might just be, we have this uh, little tool we call the wheel of stress, right? It's like a pie, you know, and there's different wedges for different domains. And we might say like, sit down with you and say, just color in the pie wedges with how much stress you're experiencing in all of these different domains. Um, and so like that might be our first step with a client to surface the data about, okay, what's actually going on here? Okay, cool. So you've named, you know, these particular domains as areas that are causing you some of the most um, problems. Where would you like to start to work here? Like we're not going to tackle all of these, but where would you like to start to work? So then, you know, depending on the situation, we might teach things like, um, you know, simple meditation, right? You know, changing your sympathetic parasympathetic balance, right? Dialing down your like level of being amped up all the time. We might teach simple visualizations. We might use some basic uh, CBT techniques, right? Um, you just teach that in the course. You teach yeah. CBT in the course, yeah. Yeah, some basic CBT. And we don't call it CBT because I think that sort of gets us into hot water with, you know, like uh, scope of practice. But there are some super basic CBT techniques like planning, you know, or noticing or keeping records of awareness of particular things or um, creating a, a classic CBT one is something like exposure, right? Creating a risk hierarchy. Where do you notice your habits going off the rails? Let's take a list of all the common situations in your life and let's rank them, you know, from zero to 100 in terms of difficulty. And where do you notice the wheels coming off the bus in terms of your habits? Okay, cool. Let's target there and let's gradually like help you work through these increasingly difficult situations in successful ways. Again, maybe we use visualization, maybe we use planning, maybe we'd use, you know, other things, but there's lots and lots of basic techniques that we can take from counseling practices or, you know, sports psychology that we can use to uh, address your situation. So that's just a very basic example. Sure. Mm-hmm. How much do you think, um, just going down that path of stress and cortisol and inflammation, mm-hmm. um, how much is that ultimately impacting someone's, a coach's dietary decisions for a client? Oh, hugely, hugely. Because I think so many dietary or workout plans are created with the assumption that the person doing them has all other conditions optimal, right? Is getting the optimal amount of recovery. They're getting the sleep they need. They're getting the recovery they need. They're calm in the rest of their life, you know? And it's 2020, like things are literally on fire right now. (laughs) I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's hard to imagine it could get worse. Like I'm sure it could get worse in all kinds of ways, but um, you know, people are so profoundly stressed in the 21st century that, you know, this is my default assumption with you as a client. I assume that you are near your maximal red line of stress capacity, unless you demonstrate otherwise. And, you know, we, one of the things we do actually is we have to educate people about performance under stress because, you know, a lot of our assumptions around working out or eating well, like, oh, I'll just, you know, I have a lot of clients saying, well, maybe later I'll have more time maybe later I'll have more energy. I'm like, no, maybe later is not a thing. That's never going to happen, right? There may be that one perfect day you wake up and you're like, yeah, it's all coming together, right? But that's not your life, right? right? That's no one's life in 2020. So, you know, we 
have to understand that most of what we do is always going to be under less than optimal conditions. And that is our baseline assumption that we start with as coaches, but also that we educate our clients around. You're never going to feel or almost never going to feel that perfect conjunction of like energy and time and attention and motivation. It's never going to happen ever. <laughs> so that definitely changes our recommendation. And that goes back to what we were talking about with calorie recommendations. It's not that we don't think calorie recommendations are useful. It's just that they're not always the skills or the practices or the actions that our clients really need in this context. So, That's how, so how does that influence caloric intake? Um, well, it might influence the caloric intake the person is currently doing or is trying to do. So, I mean, let's take two examples. Uh, a lot of athletes uh, are actually what we used to call like hard gainers back in the day. So when they're stressed out, they don't eat. So they lose their muscle, they lose their lean mass, they lose their performance uh, ability to some degree because when they're stressed out, their tendency is to their, for their appetite to diminish. Right. So those are the folks that find it hard to keep the muscle on them when when stress hits. Then you have the folks who eat more when they're stressed. Right. These are the folks who, who struggle to lose weight. And as soon as a stressful situation hits, you know, boom, off to the fridge. So with these folks, uh, you know, stress would affect what they're doing right now, but also what we can get them to do in the future. Right. So if you're a stress eater and I hand you a calorie deficit uh, intake, Maybe you can do that for a few days until you have a stressful meeting at work, right? And then it's just off the rails. So in my planning, I have to kind of account for, I may need to put particular skills in place before we get to the calorie guidelines in order for you to be able to handle that stressful situation so that you can eat the way that you want or need to eat. So it kind of affects it in terms of like, uh, you know, what we're seeing right now, like how, how, how do clients walk in the door, right? But it also affects how, do, how does our work together occur over the long term as they cope with their life. What strategies would you suggest someone implement in that case? Because I'm going to guess there's a lot of people that deal with that in both directions, right? People who say, hey, I don't eat and therefore I don't gain muscle. And people who say, gosh, I just can't stop myself when I do. And I know a lot of listeners have reached out and said, hey, what, what is your intervention? Yeah, I mean, the interventions would, do, would be different for different people, right? So, for example, for the people that really struggle to eat under stress, we find things that are calorie dense, uh, nutrient dense, that they can tolerate when they're stressed. So, for a lot of people, that might be liquid nutrition. That might be, you know, put everything in the blender, make a super shake, um, you know, <laughs> and then drink it, right? Because it's more likely you can eat that versus like a real food meal that might be just like well aversive so that's that's one of the strategies we use for those folks and then for the folks who are stress eaters we might teach something like uh we call it noticing and naming so it's like a basic mindfulness or some kind of basic self-regulation strategies right emotional self-regulation um we might teach slowing down i mean this is such a simple tool but just getting people to slow down their eating speed is hugely effective because as they slow down, they're able to get those executive functions back in control, the thinky brain, they're able to notice what's going on. You know, they typically consume less during a binge. So even if they do binge, if they binge slowly, they consume less energy. So typically with the stress eaters, we would attack the stress part of the equation. Absolutely wonderful. So you mentioned mm -hmm. that you guys are evolving into a performance certification, which is uh, exciting and I'm curious to hear all the details about that 
and maybe some ideas and suggestions how you suggest people would eat differently if their objective is performance rather than just generic health. Yeah, it's a it's a good question and like when you, and when you say performance nutrition, I mean like the terminology is really interesting and we've kind of grappled with this a lot at Precision Nutrition because you know, we work with folks who aren't just athletes, but who are highly active. Um, you know, so for example, folks who are in active military or tactical frontline personnel, um, a lot of well, people fighting forest fires right now. I mean, like there are jobs that people can have that are extremely physically difficult. Um, and these people uh, also need good nutrition, right? So we kind of circled around, like, do we call it sports nutrition? Do we call it performance nutrition? Um, and one of the other problems is a lot of traditional sports nutrition does not consider the person in context. And, you know, hopefully one of the themes people take from this conversation is that we're very concerned or interested in the person in a context, right? How are they in, in their whole life? And so a lot of sports science is like, okay, eat X grams of this at such and such a time or for every hour of, you know, your training or whatever. But they don't really think about okay, what is who is this person as a person, and what are they doing in context, and what are all the other factors that may make it easier or harder for them to achieve this. So, one of the things people don't realize about athletes, for example, is that they're broke most of them, right? We have this idea of like multi-million-dollar athletes, you know, who are the top, I don't know, ten percent wage earners, right? But that's not most athletes. Most athletes are, are broke or, you know, hustling a part-time job or at the juice bar at their gym or living out of their car or, you know, really struggling to make ends meet in lots of ways. Um, and so that may be a much more limiting factor for their nutrition. Can they afford to buy the food? Do they have a car? <laughs> like, are they living on campus at a university, right? So there's all these other factors that could affect your sports nutrition that are not dealt with in sports nutrition. So we've come up with this idea of movement nutrition, nutrition that supports movement. And the idea is over a certain threshold of movement, if you move often enough, if you move intensely enough, that changes your body's need for energy, for nutrients. And it, it means that getting enough of all of those things um, is much more crucial for you. It's a much more break or make or break situation, right? If I'm a regular person, I'm sitting on the couch, I don't get enough protein, that's eh, not great, but it's, it's okay. But if I'm a high performance person and I'm training intensely 35 hours a week, now it's a big deal, right? So we've come up with this idea of like movement nutrition and looking at the person in context. So what people would learn when they took this certificate would be obviously all of the classic sports nutrition stuff, right? Grams of this, you know, keeping your electrolytes balanced, like all of that stuff. Um, and also how to work with a person in context. So um, the way we have, we have a little diagram of it. It's like, there's like a little circle of like specific nutritional recommendations. And then there's like a larger circle of how to coach it. And then there's like the biggest circle of like the person in, in, in context. So um, yeah, I'll stop there kind of for reactions and clarifying questions because I have a sense you probably want to do a deeper dive into something I've I've said here or maybe learn more. No, I th so ultimately I just want to start to understand um, you know what this certification is and, and ultimately how uh, who it's for, right? So yeah. my uh, audience is primarily physique focused. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us are looking for things that are like, hey, what should I be doing with this? Yeah. You know, yeah. If, I, if I'm doing a high volume type training versus a contest prep versus a, I don't know, whatever, 
you know, yeah. bulking, bulking session. Like, what, what is it? What, what are all those different variances? Is ultimately what I'm looking like looking for. It's like so. If we call this performance, it's like okay, my lifestyle ultimately is whatever it needs to be to support my highest level performance. Let's assume that's the audience. We're we're looking at the the cream of the crop, right? People yeah. Who ultimately want to be the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the variances from training phase to training phase. I'd love to have you just speak to that a little bit if you can. So Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, and I think the word variances is a really good one here because a lot of what we do in the certification is help you think through almost like the flow chart of decision-making about right. your nutrition, right? Because I think that's one of the hardest pieces for people because there are really like infinite scenarios that could occur here, right? If we consider all of the variables, age and weight and goal and training time, and whether it's Tuesday and whether it's 3 p.m., like there's so many variables that could come into play here, right? So one of the things that we teach is this like decision-making tree, right? If this, then that, if this, then that. And we also talk about uh, trade-offs, right? So if you're seeking this and you're moving in this direction, to some degree, you might sacrifice this and have to understand that you have to relinquish some of this to get more of this. And I think this is uh, one of the crucial factors to understand about performance, which is that often to get top performance, you have to sacrifice other things or trade off or compromise on other things. So, you know, we would give specific recommendations of like, okay, if you're trying to do this under these conditions, do X, Y, and Z. Here's the formula for you, right? So we have a whole resource, for example, on cutting weight. It's like 20 pages long on how to cut weight. Uh, you know, and it's it's very, very like, you know, if this, then this, if this, then this. Um, but, you know, so I think there's the specific recommendations, right? How to calculate it, uh, how to determine what you need, uh, what variables are more important than others. But there's also a lot of stuff around, okay, now that you've got your recommendations, how do you actually do it? What does this look like in real life? So for example, we have this whole resource on carb loading for endurance athletes. That is also something like 20 pages long. Um, But it also is like, okay, here's all the specific amounts, all the recommendations for you. But also here's how to do it, right? Here's how to execute. And here's your shopping list of stuff. Like, I think that's the missing piece in a lot of these recommendations is, okay, now I know my amounts. But how do I actually do this? So that's the piece that we include as well. So people will get those like really super practical like skills as well. So what I really wanted to drill down on there was um, ultimately how often should someone be changing the nutrition, correct? Because we, we see that the variability ultimately could be day to day if we, or, yeah. or even hour to hour if we were so able to be intuitive. But then you, you run into the subject of nature of, of oh, I'm just going to rationalize all these different changes that I may or may not need. So. I'm curious if you guys made some suggestions around, hey, stick with this for this long if this is your objective, or is it mm-hmm. like trying to ultimately teach them how to have this dynamic thought process that changes, like, hey, I know I did extra work and I worked extra hard on training today versus I, I had a really bad workout versus I had really poor sleep versus I had this massively stressful event. Like, ultimately, if we could hand people that doctrine, mm-hmm. right, that skill set, like, hey, this is how you do it in a dynamic way, that would be interesting. Yeah, I think so too. And it is much more of the latter. Although in in the case of the former, you know, for us, there's always this balance of stability and variety, right? And and I think, you know, 
often people seek variety for the sake of variety. Like, oh, I need to change things up all the time. And you have trainers saying, oh, your, your muscles need to be confused. And, you know, like this is really not a kind of physiologically valid thought in a way, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, we do need to accommodate variability and our training will have variability. We're going to have training days, like you say, uh, you know, hard training days and low training days and different phases of athletic competition. Is it competition time? Is it off season? Like, when is it? Um, and so really what we're talking about is finding the optimal balance of stability and variety. And so to circle back to your question of like, how often should people change, um, I would say as often as they need to, but not not more often than that, right? So some person, you know, some people might go along using foundational principles and, you know, feel, look, perform awesome. That might be great for them. Other people may need to do a little bit of uh, give and take, but I would argue that if we think about long-term homeostatic regulation, it's probably not as variable as many people would assume. I think we often like complexity because it feels like doing something. It feels like being productive. It feels like being sciencey. Yeah. It may not be what we actually require because the the body is also very good at like sorting things out in the wash, so to speak, right? And so it's like I was saying before, what occurs in the space of a week? Again, maybe you go on this great new diet for a week. It's awesome, and then your body's like, oh hey, let's not let's regulate that, right? So you get long term homeostatic regulation that may completely negate the entire project. So I think we want to be, I mean, this is what I'm saying. I, I, I think we want to be careful about variability and not overvalue it. Um, so kind of to, to bring it to its sure. rightful place, if yeah. I can put it that way. Yeah. So we spoke about stress a little bit and I'm curious as to your favorite strategies to mitigate stress. So are you going after the environmental changes uh, or is it the psychological changes or maybe it's you know additional carbohydrate or maybe it's supplements or maybe it's all of them. I'm curious if you had some suggestions uh, for our listeners who obviously we are going through massive amounts of stress. What would you say is maybe the hierarchy of uh, order of selection? Should I be doing meditation? Should I be doing longer sleep? Should I be doing you know more aerobic work? What, what are your you know breath mm -hmm. work? What are your suggestions? Carbohydrates, sleep, uh, supplements, what are they? Mm-hmm. I think the the first the first thing to understand is, as you say, the hierarchy, right? There's no supplement in the world that is as good as an extra one or two hours of sleep consistently <laughs> over the long term, right? So, so you know, foundational practices would be, you know, the the biggest rocks in the jar at the base of the pyramid would be things that truly regulate you physiologically. So breath work would be in there, sleep work, sleep would be in there, mindset training, changing beliefs about situations, having more psychological coping skills would probably be in there because again, you know, my thoughts are going to affect my physiological uh, state, right? Like if I'm running around panicking going, oh my God, it's 2020 and we're all completely screwed and we're all going to die in a horrible fiery hail, like of course my physiology is going to respond, right? So psychological techniques it are some of the tried and true that are aimed at lowering stress, those would be the base of your pyramid. But the way that I would start this is to say to clients, okay, here's, here's the pyramid. Foundational psychological and physiological recovery practices, you know, sleep, calming down, anything that elevates parasympathetic tone, you know, or, or gives you the ability to, to, to get to sink more into that deeper state of rest and relaxation. All of those are at the base of the pyramid. We, all, we also can do little tiny, you know, fart around things that might give you slight amounts of relief. 
Um, given all these kind of things gonna, on the pyramid. I'm going to put the, the fart around thing right. in the same category as bio, biohacking, right? That's right. Thank you. I'm glad you said it and not me, because that's right. exactly how I feel about biohacking in lots of ways. Um, I, I think I think we're a bit, it's, it's a bit of hubris to think we can outsmart sure. millions of years of evolution. Useful, but, anyway. but it is a small lever, like you say, right? Exactly, right? And so in this athlete guide, actually, we have this pyramid showing, you know, big gains, marginal gains, like, and all of these things are entirely valid. But with the client, so let's talk practicality. The client may look at the base of the pyramid and say, my life is too insane right now to achieve these base of the pyramid things. Maybe I'm a new parent and sleep is just not on the agenda at all. Like it's not possible for me to get more sleep or I'm, I'm on active duty right now, military, and I'm sleeping in a tent with a bunch of other people. Like it's just, that's not on for me right now. So what we would start with the client asking them is just to say, what, looking at all of these options right now, what do you feel like you're ready, willing, and able to take on out of this whole collection right now? Because even for some clients, five minutes a day of meditation is stressful, right? <laughs> the obligation to meditate five minutes a day is would give them more stress. They would get more relief from walking the dog, right? So the opening conversation is, what are you ready, willing, and able to do right now out of all of these options, um, understanding the relative score of them? Right. So, you know, maybe all you're willing to do right now is take this supplement. Maybe you're only willing to take 400 milligrams of magnesium right now. That's where we start. Okay, cool. And recognize that it's, you know, going to be a small percentage improvement, but that's where we would start. So we would kind of combine like the hierarchy with reality. Right. And I think a lot of people get lost in the shoulds. I should do this. I should do that. The only thing that you should do is what you're fully ready, willing, and able to do right now, and that you can truly manage in a sustainable and consistent way. Um, I do think that what is one thing that's underrated, though, um, is aggressive physical movement. Um, you don't hear this often, because typically people are like, go sit somewhere and calm down. Right. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm raging, the last thing I want to do is go sit somewhere and calm down, right? For a lot of people, it's much more regulating to expend energy outwards, to go and smash something, right? To go and like have a hard run, to go and expend that energy in really aggressive and assertive ways in the world. So I actually think that is a highly underrated stress management technique, punching the shit out of something or like, you know, or whatever. Right? Yeah, no, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's just my two, you know, two cents vote right. in favor well, it's of- It's uh, the fight flight or freeze response, right? And, and maybe the fight is, is the one they say, well, most people aren't gonna stand there and fight, but getting it out in some way when you're stressed is uh, certainly the movement piece allows you to not embody the trauma and embody the stress. You can, you that's can exactly right. kind of mobilize. Um, so what I wanna wrap on is you said that um, you guys are getting into some behavior change stuff now, and I've been a coach for, gosh, 20 years plus now, and uh, you, know, you hand everybody the best diet for them in the world and the best workout plan in the world, and, you know, maybe five to 10% of people actually succeed and the rest of them get a little bit of progress and then ultimately regress and go back to who they were before. And, and it comes back to this identity piece, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, who do, who do you identify as? Um, and so that become, that comes into well, how do we ultimately change habits, beliefs and behaviors, right? So I'd love to get into what, what you guys are uh, putting together as far as strategies to change people's behaviors. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> It's a super, super interesting question, I think, you know, how to change behavior. I mean, you can spend your whole life trying to 
trying to figure this out, right? Because of the complexity of human beings in a context. And so one of the areas we're sort of pushing into, so, I mean, the basic survey is what is behavior change, right? What actually changes behavior versus what we think changes behavior. And I think your example of giving the perfect plan to someone and having only a few of your clients do it successfully is a beautiful illustration of that, right? Like no matter what majestic plans we create, we have to get people to do them. So where does behavior change actually come from is I think a key thing to teach. What are some of the most effective techniques for changing behavior um, in clients and also for ourselves as coaches, I'm speaking as a coach now, there are things that we need to do as coaches to make sure that our clients are better at their behavior change. So one of the things we need to learn to do is regulate ourselves, our own frustrations, anxieties, stressors, desires to not push and convince and, and tell people stuff, right? So that's a whole other piece of it. So what are the most successful techniques with clients? And what are the most successful techniques with ourselves? Um, and so, and there's different schools of thought, you know, for example, you have uh, BJ Fogg's behavior design stuff, which I love. I love BJ Fogg, such a terrific guy. We actually spent a week down with him in California a while back. Um, but his, he's very oriented towards like environmental and systemic changes, right? What can you change around you or put in place around you to amplify the probability that you will do the thing that you want to do, right? Um, but, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, especially with social change, movements for social change in 2020, it, we tend to think of change as something that happens inside us, like it's an individual capacity that we somehow adjust, right? And I've been thinking a lot about change within relationships uh, and change within community and change within society. And so, you know, in this behavior change certification, we're going to be talking about not just like, how do you change inside you or the little things that you do in your daily life, but how can you leverage things like relationships and social support and environmental supports and broader community supports to have change? And I think those are much more powerful levers of change a lot of the time. Um, we know that about 80-ish, 80, 85% of uh, what creates a successful outcome in counseling is the relationship that you have with your therapist or your counselor. So, I mean, to me, that's just an astonishing fact in a way. I mean, it's not astonishing if you understand how human brains work, but it's astonishing in the sense of like, we assume the change comes from individual wanting to do it on their own and going to do it on their own, but that's not actually how it operates, right? So what we'll be teaching is like, super hands-on techniques and skills, you know, things that you can use right now in the next two minutes with your clients, but also a broader understanding of like, how does this actually work? What are the levers that you can pull to increase the probability that your client will change? So it's a very, it's like a very kind of broad perspective. Take so does on. that kind of come back to like the five people you surround yourself with, like find people mm -hmm. who ultimately you want to aspire to or that inspire you in some way to. Yeah, to that's one part of it. Yeah, that's yeah. one part of it. But I think, you know, we, we really underestimate. I mean, and so there's work in things like early childhood education or, um, you know, somatic psychotherapy around this. It hasn't quite made its way into coaching, but it's not just about what the people around you are doing, but how safe you feel in relation with those people, right? Sure. And so we know that we cannot change at a deep level when we're under threat. 
So if you're in a context where, you know, the coach is yelling at you or, or um, you know, like where you're just consumed with your own like angst and frustration, you know, that's threat mode and you can't fundamentally change and grow under those conditions. And so it's not just about who's around you, but also the quality of those relationships. Do you feel safe and supported within those relationships? And that, you, you may not need them all the time. Like maybe you can have just enough so that you have that one role model that's a little bit more prickly or difficult or, you know, alienating that you can still achieve, you know, or aspire to. But on some degree, I think we also need to talk about like, what's the safety of your support system? Yeah, I just had Dr. Tina Bryson on who's a uh, childhood education expert and she's brilliant mm-hmm. and she's got this her and you would know the name dan siegel her and mm-hmm. dan siegel write books so it's uh safe soothe seen and secure her four s's and it comes back to adults too and you think of the exact same thing if you're trying to get somebody to change behavior and they're you know they're going to work and it's hostile and they you know their their financial situation is hostile and their home relationship is hostile like it's it, they're always running away from the line and the likelihood of changing something is effectively uh, zero right until they start to make those changes to that that environment and all those contexts it, it becomes very very challenging to get them out of that fight or flight mode and i think there's a lot of people in that reality right now spending a lot of time at home mm-hmm. uh, and maybe more than they ever have <laughs> their, mm-hmm. their spousal relationships start to become a little challenging and they don't really have that safe haven that secure place where they go man i can just go here and be myself you know and i try to create my house in a way that's like a spa like when i walk in like i want to put everything down and just you know it's clean it's t- it's tidy it, it, it's always feeling like i'm at peace i'm not having to be hectic and, and so it allows me to come home and unplug and decompress and i don't think there's a lot of people out there who have that reality so i think you're just creating that awareness of like having some safe haven um where you could just be yourself and relax and let all the armor off and uh, feel secure and soothed and safe um, i think is a really powerful transformative um, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, I mean, you, you put such a beautiful frame on it. And I think, you know, the, the reality that, that a lot of us have come to confront in very painful ways is that there are a lot of people in the world who never have psychological safety. And it's not because they don't want it. It's not that it's yeah. not that they're, they, they simply cannot, yeah. right? So I, I think that's a huge thing to acknowledge um, that there there is just, are often our capacity to create to actively create psychological safety, even as much as we try, is super limited. Right, and I think yeah. as we become adults, it's almost they just don't have the skill set anymore, right? So some people talk about their parents not being emotionally available or not being supportive and loving, and you're like, well, how well do you speak Chinese? And they're like, what do you mean? I don't, I don't speak Chinese. Well, why not? Because you never learned. Well, either mm-hmm. did they, right? And so they just don't know how to to, to be that welcoming, loving person for you because they don't have that secure, safe place for themselves. Mm-hmm. So they literally don't have it in their heart or their brain and they can't do it for you. And that's, you're trying to ultimately squeeze juice from a rock, right? And it just doesn't work. So it's an unfortunate reality, but I think it gives context on, you know, if you're, if you're trying to change someone's behavior, it's just not going to work. The only way to do it ultimately is accept them and love them and maybe give them that safe place so that they can in return and go, wow, like I actually feel safe, secure, uh, and soothed. And uh, maybe return the same for you. Mm-hmm. And for folks listening, I mean, this may sound super touchy-feely, right? Like, like this has no place in coaching. You know, coaching is about getting stuff done. Um, but I mean, what we're talking about here is neuroscience. Like this yeah. is not like something that, this is not some like new agey play the bongo sort of thing. It is, it is how human brains uh, work as right. social mammals. And so um, like understanding this, and it's such a weird paradox. It's like, only when people feel safe and accepted as they are, 
can they change? It's just a weird counterintuitive paradox of, yeah. of human existence. So yeah. we, had, we had Dr. Andrew Huberman on the show, who's become a great friend of mine, a wonderful, brilliant neuroscientist from Stanford. I don't know if you know him when you went to CBJ mm -hmm. blog, he's also out there. Um, but spoke about the same thing. It's just like, mm -hmm. this is this is the neuroscience, right? The, this dynamic balance between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, it's one of the two pathways, and you know, which one are you reinforcing more and more and more? And most people are reinforcing the amygdala, and it almost becomes an impossibility to get them out of the amygdala without huge amounts of really calming stimulus over a long period of time, right? And that's that's a huge challenge for people who have never had it in their in their adult life, and I think there's a lot of people in the world like that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, to circle back around to high performance, though, we have this graph in our uh, our athletes curriculum, which is like one axis is support, another axis is challenge. So if you would like to perform at a high level, you absolutely can. It's just that you need a massive amount of support. So as your challenge level goes up, so must the support level. So if you want to go and like, you know, crush the limits of human performance, by all means, go and take a crack at it. Just understand you cannot do it alone you cannot do it like there's no one who just like on their own volition is going to the olympics or is cross-country skiing across antarctica like it simply does not happen and i think in north america we love the myth of the individual hero or heroine you know forging ahead on their own steam it doesn't work that way no. in, in in real life and that's so powerful because i wish someone had told me that when i mm -hmm. started you know bodybuilding i was the island of one right i was like i'm doing mm -hmm. it all myself and yeah i think i would have been so much more uh fulfilled more, more successful ultimately less stressed had i just uh you know been willing to accept that and you know i think a lot of people i deal with a lot of clients like this as well who you know in their past have had no one to rely on no one to depend mm -hmm. on so now to now open up to somebody and say hey i'm going to depend on you it's it's a very hard thing to do because they've always been historically let down so mm -hmm. to say like hey i'm actually going to allow someone into my vulnerable space and into my love and into my heart and, and I'll depend on them is, is a very, very challenging thing to do for someone who's a type A personality like most like most athletes are. Like it was very, very hard for me, right? Most of the time it was like, hey, I'm just gonna put them on payroll and that way they have to do what I have to do. I, have to do. <laughs> well, I didn't know any better, right? And yeah. at the end of the day it was very hard to uh, to bring those people in to create your support network. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a documentary that just came out called The Weight of Gold. Uh, hosted by Michael Phelps and uh, athletes talk about this exact dynamic that, that feeling that they have to do it all alone. Uh, and so they do have a support team of like technical people, like people teaching them technical skills, but not the emotional and mental skills support team. Mm -hmm. And the number of them that talk about suicide or, you know, they give examples of people who have actually done it is not shocking in a way, but probably should be to, to all of us. Um, because it's like, it's a perfect demonstration of the pressure of high performance without the base of support. So, I mean, not to take it to the extreme, but I think, you know, that's, it, it, it's at, at the best, in the best case scenario, challenge of that support is unfulfilling, right? In the worst case, it's way worse than that. It really does have significant impact. Right, and it's very real in the bodybuilding space. It's actually been happening more and more and more. People are taking their own lives and mm. um, it's, it's a sad thing. And people see them up on you know the stage or put them on a pedestal like, wow, they have all their stuff together. They're working so hard. But sometimes that's our outlet, right? That's how mm -hmm. we forget about all the things that are missing in our life. The only that's way right. we actually feel right and feel good is if we're getting after it, we're, we're doing it ourselves. And there isn't that safety and that that uh, security of having someone who you love and who depends on or you can depend on. Um, it's a it's a huge reality because you know the better you get at something, ultimately you realize like 
the more time it takes, sometimes the more selfish you have to be. Mm-hmm. And to have someone who actually accepts and loves you for that is, um, you know, sometimes a challenge. So anyone out there who's supporting a pro athlete, don't always assume they have their stuff together. Like just because mm-hmm. on the outside it may look that way, on the inside or, or deep down, they're, they're, they still need that love. They still need that uh, security, even though they may not be willing to ask for it or even accept it when you first offer it, right? Mm-hmm. And often the things that drive you into bodybuilding or pro athletics or whatever it is, are the, are, it's almost like trying to outrun your demons, right? Or, or feeling like if I can just control this one thing. And to, I mean, to circle back to the conversation about, you know, what are the specific recommendations for things? I find often or sometimes people get lost in the practice of specific recommendations because it's the only thing they can control, right? right? If I can control my food intake, if I can control my working out and all these other things, or spend time on my spreadsheets and my trackers and whatever, I will have a sense of control in my life that is missing like in those other domains, right? right? Um, and, and I think it's not accidental that many, many hardcore athletes are, you know, once they finish competing or even as they're competing, you know, there's also a parallel with substance use or other addictive types of behaviors. Um, you know, it, something is driving people and there's a, there's a void that's not getting fulfilled. So we we try to put things into the void <laughs> to fix that. Yeah, that's right? exactly yeah. it. And most pro athletes don't want to think. They're just like, just tell me what to do. Because yeah. as soon as they slow down to think, now they have to be there with their thoughts. And oh, yeah, it's so, horrifying. It's, like, <laughs> don't ever do that. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it absolutely is. is, for sure. Well, you know, you say don't do it, but the, rea- the reality is you have to. Like, you have yes, to sit there in meditation yeah. and you have to find those things that are going to allow you to to uh, be at peace with your mind, right? And this is kind of the mission that I've taken on in the bodybuilding community. It's like, hey, you can have this massive amount of muscle, you can have these huge aspirations, and you can strive for excellence and still be fulfilled and safe and secure inside and uh, you know, ultimately not be angry at yourself and not be depressed and, and anxious all the time because you're ultimately not running away from something anymore. You're just creating these skills you're creating the the resilience of one the autonomic nervous system to the psychological resilience, uh, and then skills to bring yourself out of those deep places, right? And I think that's a big big part of the message and the mission of, of what I I'm doing now, the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, um, is like how do we help people with this? Because it's real, mm-hmm. and it may not just be in pro athletes. It's real in in most people, whether or not they choose to admit it. Yeah, we we all have our drugs for sure, and I think especially as we age, this this necessity of confrontation with the self you simply cannot escape it. Like you, you might as well do it sooner rather than later. You know, so I joke about never wanting to be alone with our thoughts, but I mean, the fact is it has to happen mm-hmm. in order for healthy psychological functioning to occur. And it's super icky. It's really gross. It's deeply uncomfortable, horrifying at times. Like it actually, it, it is literally like, like traumatically horrifying sometimes mm-hmm. depending on what's in the container. Um, but you know, you must do this at some point in your life. You cannot get to the end of your life without having done it, if you want to have adequate psychological functioning, if you want to be an okay person in the world, this task of development has to occur. And ideally, again, it occurs with with support, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just started into a book, Waking Up by Sam Harris. I don't know if you knew Sam Harris. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's actually perfect right, right along this context. And again, not really his intent to help people with this, but it's certainly just having them... Uh, understand the dynamic of the of the mind as it interplays with spirituality and even though it doesn't like that term uh, that's ultimately how most people would view it so that's my book recommendation for the week if you haven't already read it i think it'd be a great one krista thank you so much for your time yeah, uh, i'm gonna have you send people to either your social or pn wherever you send them you can direct them 
Yeah, I think precisionnutrition.com is the place to be for, for the vast amount of material that we're talking about. And uh, as you just made that last recommendation, I was thinking about how one of our domains of deep health is existential health. It's exactly very similar. Uh, so yeah, precisionnutrition.com. I mean, there's so much stuff on there. There's like tons of free stuff, free courses, free articles. Uh, that's really where I would begin to learn about all the things that we've been talking about today. Amazing. So mm -hmm. uh, such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Appreciate it. All right, that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I know you have so many choices uh, when it comes to podcasting. You're here with me, so thank you. I don't take that lightly. I always seek to bring you the best information so you can ultimately live your greatest life in a body you love. Thank you so much to Krista Scott Dixon. Thank you so much to Precision Nutrition for doing this incredible thing that they're doing. And um, you know, John Berardi's become a friend. He's a wonderful guy. He's been a guest on the show. And they're doing such incredible things. And this is maybe the most parallel with how I would go about teaching nutrition, which is why become an advocate ultimately is you know yes calories matter yes food choices matter but none of them matter if you're not well if you're not strong if you're not you know at least resilient to stress if you're not healthy ultimately and this is the foundations that exist at the bottom of this pyramid that krista speaks of um so as i said uh, this was you know truly a blessing to have chris on the podcast toward the end of the podcast you guys heard we got into some cool stuff so if you did enjoy the podcast, I would absolutely love if you shared at least one person that you know and love who is trying to live their greatest life in a body they love. And today's podcast is brought to you by Buy Optimizers. You can head over to Buy Optimizers and get hooked up with 10% off. Use the code MUSCLE10, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com. BuyOptimizers.com. Use code MUSCLE10. That's good for anything site-wide. They're going to get uh, my favorite products, as I mentioned in the intro, are going to be uh, Messimes, Mag Breakthrough, and Gluten Guardian. They've also got some amazing probiotics that can help with digestion protein and a whole new suite of products coming through for you. Have an amazing day, guys. I'm thankful for your time, and thank you for being here. Don't forget to subscribe and be here for the next podcast. We've got good stuff coming at you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Mikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.